Father, thank you that we can come here before you today. And we just pray that as we look at your word today, that it will speak powerfully into our hearts, that you will cause the Holy Spirit to be working in us so that we will not only just understand, but to be able to live out uh, what it means to be people in Christ. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now I remember reading somewhere uh, that things are always in a state of flux, that things never remain the same, and that uh, there's no such thing as things being constant. And this article was saying that things are either getting better or things are getting worse. So you're either making progress or you're either going backwards. I thought that was really uh, apt because uh, for many people in their Christian life, uh, people are very content in terms of remaining the same. Uh, They want to stay where they are. And I think that actually for many Christians, this is an illusion. uh, The idea where in the Christian life you can remain the same, because I think that in the same way as Christians, we are either going forward in our Christian life or we are going backwards. We are either progressing or we are going and getting worse. Now today as we look at uh, this passage in Philippians chapter 1, um, Paul tells us that he doesn't want the Philippian Christians to remain the same. He doesn't want them to stay at where they are, but rather his whole aim in life was for them to progress in the faith. So if you look in your Bibles, in verse 25, if you remember last week when we studied this passage, he said, Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, that means he will remain living and with them, and will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that my being with you again Will, uh, sorry, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. So here as we look at God's word, God wants us to make progress in our faith. And that's Paul's aim and goal in life. Uh, the reason for living for Paul was not to retire before the age of 40 or to become rich and famous, but to see his Philippian church grow in progress in their faith. But the question is, how do we grow in the progress of our faith. What do we do to progress in our faith? Well, it's all found in verse 27. Okay, now verse 27 is the most important verse that we're going to be looking at today because it is the key verse which, which basically is the paradigm for everything that follows, right? Because in verse 27 it says, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Okay, now this is the main instruction here. How do you make progress in faith? It is by conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And then in verse 28 all the way to chapter 2, verse 11, it's all about how to apply living a life which is in conduct worthy of the gospel of Christ. So there are not many, many instructions here that Paul tells the Philippian Christians. It's just one instruction, but many implications of how to apply that instruction. So in verse 27, it says, Whatever happens... Conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, I know that uh, for some of you who are reading the uh, ESV translation, uh, you'll see the word only. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And both of them are capturing the same idea. He's sort of saying that whatever happens, whether I come back or don't come back, whether I live or whether I die, there's only one thing that you really need to do. There's only one idea that you need to keep. And this, that is to conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now for the Philippian Christians, this idea of conduct 
would be a very familiar one with them. Now, this idea of conduct is a standard of behavior which you behave because you, of your obligations or some sort of loyalty or links. Now, uh, Philippi, uh, in, if you look at this map, right? Uh, it's up here. Philippi, yep. So Philippi was up here, and it was actually part of uh, the region of uh, Asia or Macedonia, okay? Uh, but it was actually a Roman colony, it was a Roman town. So if you look at the next map, okay, this is the, oh, you can't see it very well, but this is all Rome, right? All the green stuff is all Rome. And obviously Italy, that's the capital, okay? So uh, Philippi was somewhere here, okay? All right, over there. And what happened was, it's actually like a colony of the Roman Empire. But Philippi itself was a very, very important colony of the Roman Empire because it was a city which was made out of uh, ex-centurions. They were like, uh, all the ex-Roman soldiers who were retired went to Philippi to live. And uh, the citizens of this city were considered Roman citizens, not a colonists, right? So when Paul used the word conduct, it would be very familiar to the Christians in the city because they live differently from the people around them. They, they, they live differently from the other people living in that part of the world. Because in the city of uh, Philippi, uh, they were governed by Roman law. So property rights, civil law, constitution were all formed under Roman law. Uh, morally and socially, they were different from the people around them. The people spoke Latin and they dressed in Roman clothes. Uh, the way they built, they uh, did business and their buildings were not designed like the other cities. They were built like Rome. So I remember when I was younger, uh, I used to like reading this comic called uh, Asterix. Do you remember Asterix? Uh, I always remember this. I have this at home actually. Asterix and the Mansions of God. Okay, so uh, in this uh, cartoon, it is where the Romans try to, uh, you know, bring Gaul, where Asterix is, is, is living, uh, under subjugation. So they build a Roman colony. And in this Roman colony, they do everything Roman. They, they conduct themselves as Romans. And I think that's what Paul's point is here, you see. He's saying to the Philippian Christians that they must conduct themselves not as citizens of Philippi, but as citizens of God. Citizens whose identity is in Jesus Christ. That is the way they must now conduct themselves and live. See, for many people, even today as Christians, they, they think that, okay, next slide, to think that they think that uh, in order to get to heaven, they need to keep doing more and more good works. So you know, I, I make my way to heaven by doing good things. But that's not the picture that the Bible shows us, and that's not the picture that Philippians gives us. Because in the book of Philippians, next slide, it says that through the death of Jesus Christ, we are already brought into citizenship in heaven. We are already brought into identity in Jesus Christ. So this is our true state, right? Next slide. That through Jesus, we are actually all in the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God already. So what Paul is saying here is, in order to make progress in the faith, keep conducting yourselves as heavenly people. Conduct yourselves as people in Christ, not as people in the world. And that would mean that they would live very differently from the people around them. Now I know that uh, I've told you about my uncle, and my uncle uh, lived in England for many years and he married a Swiss woman. And then I think uh, in the late 70s or early 80s, he went to Switzerland and he became Swiss. So when I went to visit him in Zurich, uh, he conducts himself 
not as an Englishman or as a Singaporean or a Malaysian, but as a Swiss person would. So, you know, when we went to live in his flat, he told us very seriously, with a very straight face, he said, you cannot flush the toilet after 9.30 p.m. He says, you know, that's not Swiss. Swiss people do not flush the toilet after 9.30 p.m. Because the neighbor, the neighbors or the flat committee will complain that you disturb other people. And then he also told us very seriously that you cannot hang up your washing where people can see it because it will be offensive to the Swiss. So we never do that here. And also, even though he's very fluent in Hokkien, he speaks Swiss German and he eats bread, not rice. Now why is that? Because he conducts himself as a Swiss, not a Singaporean or not an Englishman, but he's a Swiss person. And that's what Christians are meant to do. We are meant to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. That means how we live, the way we act, is actually based and governed on the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is how we must act. So I think that as we just look at this very first verse, which tells us what we must do as Christians, what the Philippians must do, what we must do, the first application we must ask ourselves is, are we progressing in our Christian life? Are we moving forward in our Christian life? Or are we going backwards in our Christian life? Are we going, getting better in our Christian life, in our faith, growing in our faith, or are we getting worse? Because I think for many Christians that I meet, it seems like it's almost an irrelevant question. If you ask many Christians, uh, all their aim is, is to do the very bare minimum, and then they will get to heaven. That's all they're really interested in. But in God's plan for us, He's not happy for us just to cruise or to drift and to commit zero effort to our Christian life and our faith. But rather, the whole aim is that once we are saved, we are to keep progressing in our faith. And that leads us to the second application, right? Which is, if we choose to call Jesus as our Savior and our Lord, then are we actually living in a manner worthy of Christ in us? Are we conducting ourselves with the identity, not as Singaporeans or Chinese, but conducting ourselves in a manner which is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, our true and real identity? I think that uh, many Christians today, again, have a wrong idea of what it means to progress in the faith. Some Christians think, oh, okay, if I can speak in tongues more, if I can do more miracles, if I can uh, do some healing, I'm progressing in my faith. Some other Christians I meet think that, oh, well, if I get more blessings in life, if God makes me more prosperous, I'm progressing in faith. Some other Christians think, well, if I have more Bible knowledge, if I understand the Bible better, I'm progressing in faith. But if you actually look at this passage, the idea of conduct is not the idea of knowledge or the idea of healings or the idea of talking, speaking in tongues, but the idea of living out day-to-day life. Is my day-to-day life of a standard worthy that is demanded of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that reflects my identity in Christ? Because it means that in everything we do, we must strive to live to that standard in that right conduct. Now, for some people, they might find that uh, sexuality-wise, they have no problem living to a conduct worthy of the gospel of Christ. 
but they struggle with greed in terms of how they relate to money. For some other Christians, it may be you have no problem with greed, but you have a, a, a problem with anger, relationally. For some people, they have no problem with anger, but maybe you have a problem with forgiveness. You can't forgive people. So whatever it is, in whatever area that you struggle with, we have a responsibility and obligation, because that's what the idea of conduct means, right? We have an obligation to live up to a standard which is demanded us by God, because we are now new citizens of heaven. Now, if you look at uh, the situation in Philippians, for the Philippian Christians, they had two main areas which were of concern for Paul. And the first area, as you can see in my outline, was that of their uh, struggle in persecution and suffering. So he says there, then, in verse 27b, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for Him, since you are now going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now here I still have. See, one of the problems that Paul was really worried about uh, was that they were struggling like he was. You know, there was outside persecution. So remember last week, we read, uh, next slide, that Paul was in chains uh, for the gospel, for the defense of the gospel. So the, the persecution that he was feeling in Rome they were feeling in Philippi, right? Same Roman, Roman Empire, right? So not uh, unexpected that it would be an empire-wide persecution. But the difference was that uh, although Paul was persevering on in Christ and living as a Christian and sharing the gospel, he sensed that in the Philippian church that there were cracks forming among the Christians within the church, that perhaps some of them were, were not ex- so... Uh, willing to suffer for the gospel, that the threat of imprisonment, the threat of losing property, the threat of losing their jobs was actually causing them to fall away from the gospel, to give up their faith, to be ashamed of Jesus Christ. And Paul realized and warned them that to fall away from Jesus Christ, from your faith because of external pressure, would not be conduct worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, if you fall away because of pressure, then that is not the conduct that is expected of someone in Jesus, a heavenly person. So he tells them three things that they must do. The first thing is, they must stand firm in the one spirit, or as you can see in the footnote, in one spirit. Now, I don't think here uh, that the one spirit means uh, one holy spirit. Okay, uh, the context here, in the next, uh, because in the next section it talks about stand firm as one. So it's, it's the idea of oneness or one corporate unity. So it's not so much one Holy Spirit, but one spirit of common purpose. And what he's really saying here is that there is a picture where there is a sense of standing firm, not being moved, okay, as one spirit. 
So think of uh, this picture here. So think of a stand of trees, okay? Like the trees are standing there and the weather, the wind blows and there's a storm. But the trees are, are, are standing firm. They are unmoved, right? It's like, and that's the picture that he wants of the church in Philippi. He wants them to stand firm as one body, in one spirit. Then he goes on to say, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. Uh, now this word striving here uh, is actually the same idea as, as, as contending. It comes from uh, the, the idea of a, a physical gladiator contest. Right? You strive against other people. You strive in, in, in the avenue of fighting. And again, there's this image of unity, right? Strive not as a as yourself, as an individual, but strive together as one, one body for the faith. So I think the, the image here for the people in Philippi would be one that they're very familiar with. The idea of uh, gladiatorial contest. You know, in the Roman Empire, how did they entertain themselves? They didn't go to the cinema or, you know, they didn't go to, I don't know, run marathons or something, right? So what they used to do is they go to watch the gladiator contest in the Colosseum, right? So I always remember in the movie, um, uh, Gladiator, Russell Crowe, I, I don't know if, if you all watched it, but I thought it was a good movie. Um, there's one point where they are, next slide, where you know the, the, all the slaves, led by Russell Crowe of course, go into the um, Colosseum and they fight against these uh, soldiers. And uh, in the beginning, the slaves start losing because they all start fighting as individuals. But then later on, uh, Russell Crowe organizes them into um, like a team. And they fight as one. And then as a result, they, they prevail and they win and they do not die. And I think that's the image that is given to us here. He's saying contend and strive together as one. One people, one goal, one faith, one spirit for the faith of the gospel. All right, so stand firm and contend against this opposition. And he says, whatever you do, do it without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. Again, this idea of being frightened uh, is, is an idea of, of, of being thrown into a panic, of being terrified. And it's the idea of uh, an uncontrolled stampede of like frightened horses, right? So there's a lot of imagery here, right? So imagine, it's like, oh, you know, so rather than like being the church sort of just disintegrating because everybody runs off like like frightened horses, they sort of stand firm and to contend for the faith. And as you look at this passage, it is not an option that we stand firm. It is not an option that we contend as one. It's not an option that we're not frightened because it actually says here that in all, we must do this because it is a sign that they will be destroyed and that you will be saved. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for Him. See, what is happening here is that if we suffer for Jesus Christ, we actually reflect our unity in Jesus Christ. If we choose not to suffer as one for Jesus Christ, we are actually showing that we are outside the body and we are not incorporated in Jesus anymore. Jesus said very clearly in John chapter 15 uh, to his disciples, and he warned them, he said, Remember the words I spoke to you, no servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you 
this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. Now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father as well. See, so what he's really saying here is that suffering is part and parcel of the Christian life. Right? God has granted us belief in Jesus. Together with that belief will come suffering because we follow a persecuted king, Jesus Christ. If Jesus suffers, how can we not expect to suffer? And if Jesus suffers and we choose not to suffer, then we show that we are not actually in Jesus Christ at all. And I think that's what is being meant here in verse 28, that if we suffer, we are actually a sign. This is a sign to us that we will be saved because it shows that we are saved in Jesus Christ. So I think for ourselves, as we reflect on this, how do you respond when you are persecuted? How do you respond when you face suffering for Jesus Christ? How do you respond when you face opposition? Uh, not what you read about in the newspaper, no? I mean, obviously, not reading about like Syria or Iraq or anything, but personally, how do you feel when there's opposition and there's persecution to you being a Christian? I think personally, our natural response is to be frightened, right? To be intimidated. Uh, not to be like wild horses, but to be frightened in, in a way. But actually, it tells us here that we need to expect and assume suffering for the gospel. And we need to stand firm for the gospel. We need to contend as one for the gospel. In fact, Choosing not to suffer for the gospel of Jesus Christ is actually equivalent to taking ourselves out of incorporation of Jesus and putting our salvation at risk. And that's why I think it's a, quite a sad thing that uh, I've actually taken more than one person uh, through the baptism class. And I realize that there are people who go through the baptism class, uh, not just in this church, but other churches I've been to, and Unfortunately, after going to the baptism class, they choose not to be baptized. And uh, a few times that has come because of the fear of persecution, the fear of opposition. So they do the baptism class and afterwards they say, no, I've decided not to get baptized because I don't want to get persecuted, I don't want to have opposition. But sad to say that many of these people who have gone through the baptism class then choose not to be baptized, they're no longer Christians today. Because I think that unwillingness to stand up to persecution, the unwillingness to stand up to opposition, actually in the end leads to the beginning of the path out of the faith of Jesus Christ. Because you're not willing to stand firm and contend for the faith and publicly declare that you stand for Jesus, that you actually begin the long journey or even the quick journey uh, to denying Christ and falling out of incorporation of Jesus. So I think this passage here says the first thing, if you want to conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you must contend together with everybody else as one for the faith. You must strive to stand firm and not be moved by opposition and persecution for Christ. Now Paul goes on in chapter 2, and this time, 
the problem is not external, but the problem was internal, right? So here the problem seems to be, uh, if you read between the lines, uh, that within the congregation there was uh, a bit of division. There was uh, disunity, there was a lack of love, there was uh, selfish ambition, there was vain conceit. Uh, so I think the first part, uh, verse 1 to verse 3, uh, speaks very much in terms of uh, a very unloving and selfish way of relating to one another. So it says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit of one mind. Okay? Uh, okay. So, uh, yes, we will stop there. Alright. So what he's saying here is, okay, this is what they presently have. Okay, so if you look at the next slide. Uh, okay, so if you, if you look at this slide, in Christ, in cooperated with Christ, what do they have? What benefits have they received? Well, it says here, they have received many things. They have an encouragement from being united with Christ. That means they are encouraged because they know they are already forgiven, they are already saved, they have a supernatural objective reality in Christ. That's, that's very encouraging right? to know I'm already saved. God has already saved me. I don't have to worry about uh, judgment anymore. If there is any comfort from His love, well, to know that Jesus loved us so much that He gave His love, gave His life for us, and continues to love us even now. If we have fellowship with the Holy Spirit, Yep, well, we share in the, in the Holy Spirit because we are now in Jesus. If we have tenderness and compassion, okay, I, think, I think the tenderness and compassion come not from Jesus or the Spirit, but from God the Father. So actually, there's a Trinitarian element here, right, when you look at verse 1. So it says, in Jesus Christ, we have all these things. We have the tenderness and compassion, the grace of God, the peace of God, the Holy Spirit. We have Jesus living in us and dying for us. And he's saying if that is the objective reality of our identity in Jesus Christ, this is who we are, then let us live it out. Let us reflect it in the way that we live. And the way that we live to reflect this out is to be like-minded by having the same love, the same love as Jesus loved us, the same love as God the Father loves us, being one in spirit and of one mind. So what is really in, in, uh, in view here is the idea of unity, right? Oneness. One spirit, one mind. And the view of mutual love, not selfishness. And I think that here, as we reflect on it, it does address the problem, not just in the Philippian church, but in, in all churches that we see even today, of disunity and uh, of selfishness and the lack of mutual love. So I hear of uh, churches in Singapore where uh, people come to church on Sunday and they, they don't say hello to one another. Uh, I mean, you say hello to people at work, right? You say hello to strangers on the street sometimes. But these people come to church repeatedly week after week and they don't say hello to one another. And you think, well, are they reflecting the love that they've received from God? The love that they have incorporated in Jesus Christ? They're not. Uh, Pastor Y was uh, telling me before about how he went to a mission trip in, to a church in Western Australia where 
the people in the town actually tell other people in the town not to go to that church because the church has such an unpleasant reputation for arguing and fighting all the time. Now, I think this is so important because when we reflect on our relationships, our relationships should be marked by the relationship we have with God, which is one of love and tenderness and compassion. So when you relate to other people, do you relate to them with that sort of tender love and compassion and consideration, mutual consideration and love? Because if we don't, then that is not a conduct worthy of our of our relationship with Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because it's not reflecting who we are. Now he goes on in um, the next section uh, to talk about how uh, it's not just about love, right? But it's about service. Now this uh, service, I think, is linked to the idea of love, right? And I think that uh, before we talk about this service, it's also good to reflect about why it is that people um, divide within the church. Because when you look at the passage again, that they're not like-minded, right? Uh, they're not having the same love. They're not being one in spirit of one mind. And I think that part of the problem is that in church, we split not because of the gospel reasons. So if you look at the next chapter, in chapter 3, Paul says very clearly, yes, we should not be united with people who do not share the same gospel. Okay, and that will become very clear in the following weeks. But here he's saying that there is disunity and division based on personality reasons. Right? So it says here, do nothing out of selfish ambition and vain conceit. So you think about it, what, what are these things? Selfish ambition and vain conceit. Uh, surely it must be a, a, a desire for doing things my own way or thinking that I'm right, where there's disagreements with other people and unhappiness about, about things which, which come down to myself and my ego and my pride, where insensitive things are said and done or lack of consideration and care uh, are made for each other. But this is not reflecting our citizenship in Jesus Christ if we act in this way. So if there have been times where you've failed to show mutual love or tenderness or compassion or mutual consideration to other people, then I think it's very important that we repent of that behavior because that's not the right conduct worthy of the gospel of Christ. And I think that if we act in this way, it's very important for us to repent, but not just repent, but also to apologize and to be one again. So I remember many years ago, I got a really strange telephone call where some person rang me up and introduced himself to me and I'm like, uh, I can't remember who you are. Can you sort of tell me a bit more because you know I'm getting old or something? And he told me, oh, you know, don't you remember I'm from your previous church in Adam Road Presbyterian Church? And I'm like, sorry, I doesn't ring a bell. <laughs> so I said, I'm so sorry, I can't remember. And I said, so uh, how can I help you? And then he said, oh, you know, I'm really sorry because I was really rude to you once before. And uh, he said, oh, there was some meeting about some uh, building project or something where I had said something and then he'd been very rude to me. And uh, and honestly, I can't remember who said that, but I do remember the incident. So I was quite happy that he actually called to, to apologize. And I was thinking, actually, when I was looking at this passage, I was thinking, well, actually, he did the right thing, isn't it? 
Because that was a reflection of being one in the Spirit, having one mind and having the same love. Because he realized, I don't know why he realized all these years later, that he was wrong. And he chose to reach out to me and to, to try to restore the relationship, even though I couldn't remember who he was anymore. Right? But then he goes on, Paul says, that it's not just about mutual love and mutual consideration, unity, but, there's, but there was a failure of service uh, within the church. Right? Because they were not serving each other. Um, and I, I suppose it's a reflection of their one, the, the lack of one-mindedness and one in spirit. Because it says they're doing nothing out of selfish ambition and vain conceit. But rather in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with each, sorry, one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and under every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Mm. Now it says here, that instead of doing things or out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility value others above yourselves. Now, he's not saying that, okay, we must look around and think that, you know, I pretend everybody's better than me. But I think the point that is being made here is that we should value other people's needs uh, above our own. See, the, the, the way that the world lives is in, in everything that we do, there must be some self-involved, right? Uh, I do things because it benefits the most important person in the world, which is me or my, 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 my spouse or my family. Right? So that's the way the world works. Uh, but Jesus was not like that, you see? It says Jesus, even though he was God, did not use his divinity for his advantage and say, you know, I am God, what's in it for me? But rather he used his divinity, instead of getting, he used it for giving. And he gave of his divinity in two ways. Uh, the two main verbs here are in verse 7 and verse 8. And I think they imply different things. First of all, he emptied himself, right? He says there, he made himself nothing. Uh, the, the main verb here is he's emptied himself. And he emptied himself by becoming a servant instead of the one being served, and he became a man. Right? But not only did he empty himself and stop being God but become a man, but he went beyond humbling himself. He, he, sorry, he went beyond emptying himself. He emptied himself and then he humbled himself even further because not only did he become a man, but he died. And he died on the cross. See, it's, it's like he went all the way from the very top. So like he was right at the very top and he was God, he became a creature, he became a man, but not only did he become a man, but he went from beyond a man to die a death, but not just a death, a normal death, but a terrible death on the cross and to take our sins on his body. And that's the way that Jesus served. That was the way Jesus was a servant. And he's saying in this passage here that as Christians, we need to follow the example of Jesus. So we serve not for our own ambition or our own 
uh, needs, our own selfish uh, gain, but we serve for the sake of others, for the interests of other people. Now, unfortunately, uh, people don't act like that. Uh, you know, that's not our natural way of acting, right? I remember uh, some pastor was telling me how his church was uh, attached to this very popular primary school and how many people come to his church and serve uh, but actually what they really want to do is they just want to become members so that their kids can go to primary school then after their kids go to primary school he doesn't see them anymore uh, I overheard uh, another uh, case where there was a parent uh, in one of my son's school who said oh you know I, I've, uh, I've decided not to serve in uh, this particular ministry because my son is not going to be there uh, in other cases, you know, people want to serve so that they, they there's some prestige involved. Okay, I don't mind serving as a Bible study leader or as an elder or deacon, but you know, I don't want to serve uh, wiping down tables and moving chairs. Right? So in a sense, you're not serving for the interests of others, you're serving for yourself in a way. You're getting something out of it. So when we reflect on this passage, when, when you serve, are you serving because of Jesus and the way he served, or are you serving because of what you can get out of it? Uh, Because that's not conduct worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we serve, we must serve because we are serving for, as it says here, for the interests of other people. So as we look at this passage, when we want to say we are Christians, when we acknowledge we are saved in Christ, when we acknowledge that He is Lord of our lives, then it means that we have a greater identity than any identity that we have. And we must live out to that identity. Now, I think I've used this illustration before, but I thought it was very helpful. You know, uh, my son is in the army, and he was telling me how, uh, actually, as officers, there is a particular conduct expected of officers. Right? They must act in a certain way. And if you do not hold yourself to this higher standard, then apparently uh, you get punished. And I think that as Christians, uh, not to say that we get punished, but as a, in a sense, as Christians, we cannot act like everybody else. We are not like everybody else. This is not who we are. Our identity is in Christ. Our identity and our destiny is, is, is to be in the kingdom of God. So we, we cannot act like natural like everybody else we must conduct ourselves we are obligated to conduct ourselves in a way which is different worthy of the gospel of christ now i think in this passage especially in these two instances uh, it's something that we have to really pay attention to that when we face hard times persecutions opposition it is imperative that we stand firm as one that we contend for the gospel without being frightened in any way, because actually suffering is part and parcel of the identity of Jesus Christ. Anybody who tells you that uh, is not is, is not telling you the truth. To be a Christian means that at times you will suffer for being a Christian. And you must stand firm. That is the conduct that is expected of you. In fact, that conduct is a sign that you are safe. As a church... We must keep being uh, characterized by mutual love for one another, tenderness, compassion, mutual consideration for one another, to be one in every way because this is who we are. 
And we are to serve one another. To serve not for ourselves and our own self-interest. There's no self-service in church, right? But there's only other people's service in church. And that's the way that we are meant to conduct ourselves. So I hope that as we look at this passage, we will see all the more who we are and how we must live as we progress in the faith. Okay, let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, help us to see that our identity is more than our citizenship uh, here in Singapore or to whatever country, our club membership to whatever club, our association membership to whatever professional body. But indeed, our true identity is in Christ. We are incorporated in Christ. We are united in Christ. We are in Christ in every way. And because we are in Christ, we are in the kingdom of God and we are destined for heaven. We pray for each and every one of us here to live out that identity by conducting ourselves in a worthy manner according to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Dear Father, help us not to live like the world, but rather in every way to live as who we truly are. To not fear persecution, but to stand firm and contend in the face of it. Uh, to truly show mutual love and care and tenderness and compassion to each other, to be one and reflect that oneness in every way. And dear Father, to truly serve with the right motivation, not for our own self-glory or self-gain, but in the interest of others. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.